we're going to be reading the nine of the Ten Commandments from uh, the book of Exodus, verse 20, uh, chapter 20, verses 1 through, uh, 1 through uh, 16. That's it. Yeah. And now hear now the word of God. Draw attention to it. Don't let it escape your thoughts. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourselves an image in the form of anything in heaven above or the earth beneath or the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or, or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Punishing the children of the sins of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. But showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. For the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. And on it you shall not do any work, neither you, nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor the, any foreigner residing in your town. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. This is the word of God. You may be seated. As we have worked through the commandments, as we look at them, uh, if you grew up in the Roman Catholic faith, you will notice that there is a different order of the commandments than, than what we use in the scriptures uh, and, and because of that, it's more important than anything else that we understand that the first four commandments are given to us by God in order that we might learn how to love him. So as you think of those first four commandments, the question that comes before my own heart and mind is, have I loved God in this way this week? And so the rest of the commandments, the last six, the fifth through the tenth are dealing with not just loving God, but loving our neighbor. And you will remember that Jesus, when he was approached about what the greatest of the laws were, he said to love your Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, your strength, and then the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. And so as we look at these passages, one of the things that really has been, well, two observations that I have had as I've studied this, and I imagine Logan has, we've talked about it, and that is that one, it is hard to teach on a commandment in 20 minutes. 
It is really hard to give you the Word of God in 20 minutes on the depth of what God is requiring of us. But it also is a second observation. 20 minutes is about all I can bear when dealing with my own sin. Because the law reveals the holiness of God and the sinfulness of my own heart. I want you to hear that. The law reveals the holiness of God and the sinfulness of my heart. The law cannot save you. You cannot reform your life and follow these laws and keep God's commandment. You will eventually break them. And when you do, you are deserving of God's punishment with His death. Because He did not create us to live apart from Him or separated from His Word. God created you to love Him. And so to do anything less is a violation of the creative purpose that God has given in making you from the very day you were formed. And so as you and I wrestle through this, if the law can't save us, then who can? And the answer is Jesus Christ and Him alone. And so as we've gone through these Ten Commandments, it has been my prayer and hope that you will not try to be moral people because you are not moral people. There is no morality that you can live up to that is consistent and pleases God. My hope for you is that you see the depth of your sin and you come to faith and cry out to Jesus Christ. And that you put your trust in what he did in the cross for you by bearing your sins there on that tree. And therefore freeing you from the, the condemnation of the law and giving you a new life that is in Jesus Christ. Now with that said, we come to the ninth commandment, which I would much rather talk about something else this morning. Let's talk about football. How about that? That's a great idea. I, I was very interested in reading, in reading about uh, this commandment in one of the commentaries that I was able to obtain about a story of a man I didn't know. Do you know the name George O'Leary? Do you know that name? I don't. I didn't know anything about him until I came across this information. And boy, what a tremendously successful coach this guy was, or is, still today. He, he, I won't go through the list of what he has as far as his, uh, his resume, but you can see he was an assistant coach and then finally head coach in, in uh, high schools in, North, in uh, New York City or outside of New York itself. And the most amazing thing is that during those two years of head coach, he actually won 85%, or his team did, they, they, the teams that he coached, won 85% of their games. That was an unheard of record. What was even more astounding is he was noticed by other people, particularly Syracuse University picked him to be the defensive line coach for them, and then from there he began to ascend to different places of recognition for his abilities. He went eventually to Georgia Tech. I can't imagine that, living up in New York and then going to Georgia. Would that be a culture shock? Apparently it didn't shock him because in dealing with that culture in Georgia, he was able to lead those, what are the, what's the mascot for the Georgia Tech? There it is, y'all know it. He was able to lead those Yellow Jackets, to a stinging victory in so many ways. I'm beginning to sound like a sports announcer, aren't I? 
And, and the most amazing thing is, even there at Georgia Tech, he was noticed by a professional football team, the San Diego Chargers, and said, we want you to come and work for us as a defensive line coach. And he did. But then those people from Georgia Tech decided they had to have him back, and he went back to Georgia and began to coach once again that familiar school to his life in such a way that he spent a predominant number of his years up until the year 2001 coaching in, Virginia, in Georgia Tech until finally the creme de la creme called. The day arrived when the height of his career had been announced and he was being called to the University of Notre Dame, that multi-million dollar program of football, he was being asked ahead in the year 2001. And that, you would believe, would be the greatest of achievement of any man's career, any woman's career, to high, climb to that kind of height, to that ascendancy of your gifts as a coach. And yet that same year of 2001, as he was being announced as the new coach, a few days after he was hired, some inaccuracies were discovered as his biography was being published. The biography, which had remained more or less unchanged for two decades, stated that O'Leary had earned three letters in football at the University of New Hampshire. However, when a reporter from the Manchester Union Leader paper called the University of New Hampshire to research a feature on him, the school claimed that he had not even played in the game. When this came to light, O'Leary offered his resignation immediately, but the director of athletics at Notre Dame, knowing the prized possession they had called to lead their team, began to think about it, he turned it down. But then, rethinking that decision, he asked O'Leary if there were any other inaccuracies on his resume. O'Leary then admitted that he had not really earned a master's degree from New York University at Stonebrook University. Why? Because that school did not even exist. It was actually two different schools that were 50 miles apart, and he had only taken two courses at Stony Brook and never graduated. When this came to light, Notre Dame forced O'Leary to resign. O'Leary said in a statement released that day, due to selfish and thoughtless, quote, 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 due to selfish and thoughtless acts many years ago, I have personally embarrassed Notre Dame and its alumni and fans. The reporter goes on to say that O'Leary blamed the inaccuracies on resume padding, that he had followed him, that, that that kind of padding had followed him through his career. Twenty years of it, my friends. Admitting, he said, I seek, I, in seeking employment, I prepared a resume that contained inaccuracies regarding my completion of a coursework and a master's degree and also my level of participation in football at my alma mater. 
these mistakes, these, listen to this, these misstatements were never stricken from my resume or biographical sketch in the latter years. 20 years of a lie. And in the puff of smoke, a life achievement fell through his fingers. You think, gosh, no, that's horrible. It really yeah, it is. I'm sure some people said, well, what does it matter? It was so long ago, right? What does it matter? It's a lie. But yeah, but it was, a, it was an innocent lie. He was trying to help people understand his gifts. He obviously is a great coach, right? All the justification came flooding in. And yet one of the things that becomes very true as we look at the passage this morning is that God's prohibition in the ninth commandment is very clear. We shall not bear false witness against a neighbor. And so in light of that, we began to wrestle with this commandment because it deals with our truthfulness with God and with each other and with ourselves. First of all, you need to know to understand this passage correctly is that the context for this commandment is given in the ancient court of law. And so in the ancient court of law, and this would surprise many of you because we live under such a blessed judicial system in the United States, in the ancient court of law, um, specifically, when you had that uh, when you had that kind of law in in vote in people's lives, it always condemned lying witnesses. In other words, people were never to give false testimony. But interestingly enough, in the ancient days of the courts, you were presumed guilty until you were proven innocent. What's it in America? You are innocent until proven guilty. It was the opposite in those days. More importantly, there, was few, there were few standards for evidence. It only took one witness. And usually the accused, when he was accused or she was accused, had little chance to mount a defense. More importantly, the conviction of a single witness could put to death a person. Interestingly enough, it wasn't that case when God came and rescued the Israelites from Egypt and brought them into the land of promise. He directed that a new kind of justice that would represent his justice in the world would be represented through his people. What would it be? How would it be different? First, you were tried before a jury of elders. And in that trial before a jury of elders, you didn't have one judge. You had numerous judges who would weigh the evidence before you. There had to be more than one witness who would give testimony as to your guilt. There would be no death penalty based upon one witness, though there may be someone who would accuse you. Never could you be put to death for that single person giving a witness of what you've done. But more importantly, and here's where the power of that judicial system was evident in the way that God led his people if someone came and accused a person of a, of, a, of a crime that would then, in a guilty sentence, require their life, in other words, the death penalty, the person who accused that person who was convicted of the crime would have to throw the first stone as they would stone this person to death. Why? Because in throwing the first stone, that witness was saying if I'm lying may this happen to me you could well imagine the story in the gospels where the men come with a woman caught in the midst of adultery to Jesus and Jesus is riding in the ground we don't know what he wrote 
But then he said, you who are without sin, cast the first stone. And they left one by one by one. When the woman was left alone, by the way, you remember the story? Remember? When the woman was left alone, Jesus didn't exonerate her of guilt. He said, go and sin no more. Go and sin no more. Well, that's really the purpose of the law that is given for us as Christians is that we are to study its meaning and depth to such ways that we will try to avoid sin, particularly the sin of lying. You see, that's the underlying principle. That's the, that's the thing that God wants us to really understand and, and appreciate about his word, that, that there is something that God wants you to understand, not about yourself, but about him that's so important that God does not lie and therefore he forbids those who are in his name to live life of lies. We are not to be people of falsehood. Wouldn't it be wonderful if every politician who ever ran for any office had to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? Wouldn't that be shocking? Some people say, well, they'd never win. Would they not? Interestingly enough, when you look at this principle that God forbids everything that, that is in the form of falsehood, the question then becomes, well, does he mean that we can only, we can lie in other places? I mean, it, it, since the context is a courtroom, does that mean when we go to court we have to tell the truth, but maybe we can just fudge lie outside of the courtroom? No, not at all. You see, if, when God says you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, it's not just in the sense of a courtroom. It's in the sense of your life living with those who are next to you. It's about the many ways that we can lie to our neighbor. Now, I don't know if you've been lying to people. Uh, I, I think that when you go back and look at the songs that have been written concerning lies, you can find some really good tunes, can't you? Don't believe your lying eyes, Right? There are numbers of other tunes that have talked about the detriment of lying. But here's something that you and I really don't face often, and that is you are a liar. So am I. See, that's what the commandment declares. It declares the holiness of God, who never lies, and the sin of my life, which means I am a liar. So are you. This is what the Bible reveals to us about it, and it's a quandary because we say, well, I'm not that bad. I, I, don't, I don't tell big whoppers. Well, according to God, it doesn't matter how big or how small it is. You see, the way in which we lie is, is really kind of a convenient way, the synonyms that are given for it. We can, uh, we can say, well, it's an invention of the truth, an equivocation, a falsehood, a fabrication, a prevarication. Whether it's big, like a whopper, or grand deceit, or whether it's small, like a half-truth. Did you clean your room? Yes, except for under my bed. But you don't say that? It's a half-lie. How about flatteries? When you want to impress someone in such ways that you want to them influence them, whether they would give you something or look at you in a positive light or simply manipulate them for some selfish purpose, isn't that lying when you flatter someone insincerely? And then there are fibs. Oh, I remember the fibs. Do you remember the fibs? Growing up, we fibbed to our father a lot. 
I'll never forget the time when, when I had snuck into my grandfather's bedroom and decided I wanted to try smoking at the age of six. And I, I took a pack of filterless camel cigarettes and went into the back of the yard behind some bamboo brakes and lit up and started smoking. And by the time I turned green, my mother found me and they said, what are you doing? Nothing. <laughs> By the way, have you ever noticed when you ask people those kinds of questions that you get a consistent answer? Teenagers, be careful of this answer to your parents. It means you're guilty of sin. <laughs> what have you been doing? Nothing. Where have you been? Nowhere. Who have you been talking to? Nobody. That's pretty much an indictment right there. You're, you're guilty of sin. Why do we do that? Well, it's, it's a way of trying to get out of trouble because we know in our conscience we're really not living authentic, true lives. We lie not only to others, we lie to ourselves, but most, most harmfully, we lie to God. I say, well, Robert, I'm, I'm not that bad of a person. I, I, may, I may have an equivocation every once in a while, but it's meant out of love. That's it. I don't want to hurt anybody, right? You, you've had the occasion where maybe a woman comes to you and says, which, which dress makes me look fatter? Or which, which choice should I make? And you tell them and they go, what? You see, there's so many times that we try to justify lying. Well, here's some things to think about, about the power of a lie. We sometimes say things that are technically true, but yet nevertheless intend to deceive people. We overstate our accomplishments. O'Leary did, dramatically, for 20 years. And we do that putting ourselves in the best possible light. There are times that we exaggerate. Preachers never do this, by the way. Uh, that there are times when we exaggerate other people's accomplishments or failings, or even our own thinking or saying the worst about others. We mislead, misquote, misrepresent, misinterpret. We can twist people's words, taking them out of context. I am notorious for that. Did you know that? I am a pro. Ask the teenagers this morning as we were in, school, in, in uh, studying about the two natures of Christ or the, the old and the new nature. I, I could take any word they said and use it against them. We can do that expertly. So those of you who are wondering if I'm teaching the teenagers to lie, no, I'm teaching them about the old nature that loves to lie. Loves it. And yet when you think about lying or shading the truth, it's the most blatant violation of God's law. Because usually lying, we are, we are intentionally harming other people. The worst is gossip. Gossip is talking about people in a way that damages their reputation with others. I was, I was surprised to look into the EPC documents, the Evangelical Presbyterian Church, the denomination we're a part of. 
When you look under the definition of immorality, it includes gossip, lying about other people's reputation. You, you can't help but think about this and think of the passage where, where we find in James some powerful truths that James gives us. And I'm sorry for not advancing this, but we are, we are dealing with a passage of Scripture that really is, is almost unable to be heard by people today. James writes in the third chapter, Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body and sets the whole course of one's life on fire. And it and is itself set on fire by hell. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, sea creatures are being tamed and have been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. And with the tongue we praise our Lord and Father and with it we curse human beings who have been made in the likeness of God. And out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers, James writes, my brothers, meaning brothers and sisters, my brothers and sisters, this should not be. And we all say, amen. But we know it's so common. It's so accepted. It's so expected in our day. Well, what does God require in this law of his people? Well, first, we must maintain and promote truthfulness. We must maintain and promote truthfulness. When you think of that one principle, it becomes arresting because as we think about maintaining truthfulness, I was talking with someone a year ago about the news and the election and all of that, and I said, where, they asked me, they said, where do you go to find the truth? Where do you go? This is how our culture has dealt with this whole business of lying. It has become a profitable business. And in lying, people advance their careers. And just like O'Leary, they will one day pay for the price of that advancement. Why? Because God has laid down his law. You shall not lie. And it will be exposed for what it is, a lie. And so for those who, who seek to love God, one of the things that God is teaching us is we must resist this desire in our hearts to further our own ambitions by deceiving others and remember that to love God is to be honest, to be truthful. Another way in which we can do that is that we must come forward and stand for the truth when it's right. And I dare say that we're living in a time where that is going to be more of a challenge for you as a Christian than in recent memory of the history of the church in America. Where you and I are going to have to be winsome and loving but still truthful about what God's truth really is. And it's not going to be easy for you. It's not going to be easy for me. In fact, we have seen churches upon church fold to this new morality that is coming into our culture and it is overwhelming people, pastors being afraid to speak against the sins of our culture in fear of being fired. There is a whole culture that wants to silence those who would 
question or speak the truth. It is a, a, an abhorrent pestilence upon our land. And when anyone is questioned as to their as to their truthfulness, then they are castigated and slandered and categorized in an effort to shut them up. And yet God directs us as Christians that we are not called to cater to the culture in which we live. We're to speak the truth in love. Can you imagine what this nation would have been like if the founding fathers, knowing the the irreconcilable sins of, our day, of their day, if they had spoken the truth in those days, what we, would have, what we would have been spared as a people. Why, an entire civil war in our culture, in our nation's history, is a, is a mark of an unwillingness to deal with lies. God says that he requires us not only to to promote and maintain truth, that we must come forward and stand for that truth. But he says we must give charitable regard for others. What does he mean by that? It means that we are to be people who so think of others being made in the image of God that we always want to think the best of people. We want to always think and uphold their good reputation. And when it is exposed that there's something opposite of that goodness that we minimize, not excuse, not ignore, but we minimize hoping that they'll come to repentance and faith. And yet you, you find in that power of gossip that, that power not to redeem or to call people to repentance you call condemnation upon others by spreading rumors about others reputations and so assassinate them in the minds and peoples of others the law goes on to talk about not only being charitable toward others that we should also we should also discourage gossip flattery and slander and i want you to know as a pastor there have been many times that i want to say things to you to make you love me but let me tell you, if I do that, I am violating this commandment. There are certain things that we are tempted to never preach about or talk about out of fear that somehow you will reject us. But it would not honor God to do so. And so therefore, in discouraging gossip and flattery and slander, we should love and protect our own reputations and we should defend it when we're accused falsely. But we should also make every lawful effort to promise and promised to make sure that not only our reputation is secure, but the reputation of others. And so when someone comes and says, well, you know, you know, that old Joe down the road, he's a drunkard. You better be careful. If you've never seen him take a drink and being drunk in the streets. Why? Because it's rumor. It's gossip. It ruins their reputation in the lives of other people. Oh, it gets so much deeper, doesn't it? Let, let's just stop now, please. Let's, let's go home. Please, let's, let's just quit where we are. But we can't because as God words, God's word comes into our lives, it shows us the depth of everything else is that we should never participate in passing unjust sentences against other people. When we hear other people speak in ill light of others and we do nothing to stop it or expose it, then we are just simply doing the same thing. We're passing an unjust sentence on their reputation. We must not speak the truth when at an inappropriate time. Oh boy, is that just... <laughs> 
I remember in my family, one of my family members used to love saying, well, I'm just telling the truth. Well, you, do you have to say it in the middle of Thanksgiving lunch? You see how that works? You can even use the truth as a way of harming others by the timing of its use. Oh, you say, Robert, stop. Please stop. Let's go home. Well, wait just a minute. Here's some things to think about as you work through this. Let me tell you, who in God's name wants to be around a liar? You know what the amazing thing is? God. God loves liars. And let me tell you, if you are a liar, he loves you. Loves me for my lies? No, no. He loves you in spite of your lies. He came to the cross to pay its penalty. He willfully gave up his life to bear your sins. And he knows everything about you. Everything you said. And he loves you. I don't think I've ever been loved like that before. Have you? This is why God is so amazing and the Easter week is so powerful to us. Is it reminds us that God draws us not by asking us to be better than we are. He draws us by loving us in spite of who we are. And as we come to him, we cannot help but be changed. And so our desire as Christians, knowing that we will never be able to keep God's law perfectly, is that we cry out to Christ for the power to live authentic and pure lives before him. And when we find ourselves lying, we quickly go and tell people, I was wrong, I lied. And by doing so, we are set free from the power of sin. Isn't that beautiful? You know, lies, you have to tell another lie, don't you? And another lie, and another lie, and another lie. Until finally you lose count on how many lies you've told. But then in Christ, you come and say, I'm God, I'm such a liar. And through the blood of Christ, he covers you and says, you are forgiven. Forgiven. When we look at the words, you shall not bear false witness, there are some practical questions for my life that I've thought about. You're smart people. You work through it yourself. But here's something that I learned this past week, and you can, you can take it or leave it as you go. When I speak about things in dealing with other people, is what I'm about to say true? Do I know it to be true? Or do I believe it because someone else said it? There was a, a basketball player who played for Duke a couple of years ago. What was his name again? Grace Allen. You remember that guy? He was the guy on Duke who always tripped people when he was outmaneuvered. If someone stole the ball for him or did he, they were going up for a layup, he, he accidentally had his leg out too far and tripped the person over. And it was, he did it more than once. He was a dirty basketball player. 
And I remember looking on Facebook. This is while Ann was in college. And I remember looking on Facebook about how he had an interview with someone. And in that interview, he talked about what tremendous moral courage it took for him to do what he did. And how by lying and cheating, he actually grew in stature and character and became more and more prominent in that he learned so much about how to be authentically himself. And I was telling Ann about this, and I said, I, I read on, on, the, on the Internet about how this guy just really thought that the way he played basketball was so ingenuine, genuinely honest and, and, and character-building. And Ann looked at me and said, where in the world did you read that? And I said, well, it was on, I think, a page called The Onion. Some of you know what this is. The Onion turns out to be a parody. All of it was a lie. It was meant as a comedy. I took it as true. Could you imagine if I went around telling everyone that Grayson Allen was a wonderful man because he learned how to have great character from lying? Is what I'm about to say true? The second is, if so, does it really need to be said to this person in this conversation? You know, so often when you're tempted to lie or embellish or privicate, <laughs> however, whatever word you want to use, you're doing it to impress someone else or raise your standards or your reputation with other people at the cost of someone else's reputation. And then finally this morning, uh, would I put it this way if the person I'm talking about were here to listen? Y'all pray for Cindy. She's been married to a liar now for how many years? 20 plus? We're going to be celebrating 30 years. And I, I worked through this study this week and I just kept praying, God, I don't want to be this way anymore. I just don't want to be a liar. And that's why I need Jesus Christ. I cannot change myself. Neither can you. You must be born from above. You must be changed by the power of the Holy Spirit. You must be renewed in your inner heart so that you begin to hate the lie that you now love and begin to love the God who never lies. This is the power of the cross. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you for a Savior who loves us and knows us so well that he gave himself for us that through his great mercies we now are forgiven and cleansed from our sins. Our prayer is that we would not look to the law to live lives that are holy before you, but that we would look to Jesus who is our holiness who lives in our lives as one who is holy and conforms us to his image. And for that reason, God, bless your word, the ninth commandment, in the faith of hearts who believe in you. 
that it would drive us to see your goodness and your holiness, that it would expose the depth of our own sins and that it would relieve us by taking us to the Master Jesus who can forgive any sin and free us from its dominion. We ask and we pray humbly in the name of Jesus our Lord. And the people of God said together, I want to uh, ask you to join with me in our closing worshiping of the Lord.